again, welcome. We're glad to see you here this morning. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we don't follow a lot of the church calendar closely here at Downtown Prez, but we do like to recognize these four Sundays of Advent and look at passages of the Bible and sing songs that really draw attention to the incarnation, why God became a man. So we're going to look at a text that's known as the Magnificat, Mary's Song, and this is in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to really focus most of the attention after verse 46, but uh, I'm going to start in verse 39 for context, but it's in the bulletin there if you don't have a Bible and you can just follow there. Sometimes in the Bible when something very significant happens, someone who's there will respond by singing a song. And sometimes it looks like it's a, a spontaneous song. And, you know, I, it's not that I didn't believe that could happen. I had just never seen that until I saw it in my own house a couple of years ago. Um, there was, you know, there was the, the chance of snow one night. And you know how it is when there's a chance of snow. All young children become like professional meteorologists that night. And so they went to bed knowing it could, it could snow during the night. So we woke up and there's this beautiful blanket of snow waiting on everyone. And I asked my daughter's permission to tell this story, but so we got her up and we said it snowed, and, and she went to the big window, the front of our house, and she looked out, and she burst into song. It just spontaneously, you know, the snow is white. It was like <laughs> the high elves of Middle Earth, just, you know, like singing of the ancient snows. Saw it with my own eyes, but, you know, uh, in a more word-based culture, that was probably more common and, uh, and there's still people that can, that can just do poetry or hip-hop stuff at the moment, you know. And so I, this song, was it, um, was it something that Mary just did as God just did something in her heart and it welled up inside her and she sung it? Or you know, in this passage, she goes to see her, her relative Elizabeth, and that's John the Baptist's mother. In that few days' journey, did she think about it? Because this song sounds a lot like the Psalms, and Mary would have grown up with them. You can hear how she must have been steeped in the Old Testament in, in this song. Well, either way, she, she sung this song. But I want you to think about this before I read the passage. The, the Magnificat, and it's called that because in the Latin Bible, the first word is the, is the Latin word for magnified, so it's just called the Magnificat. But Mary's song used to be way more central to Christian worship. And you still do find it in more liturgical churches, Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy. But typically it's either prayed verbally, you know, unsung, or it's, it's very high classical music. And it's not really like a commoner's song that you, you know, in kind of a singable tune that you would just sing to yourself. But it used to be that. Now, there might be multiple reasons for that, but one might be this. Just at a felt level, it may be that we don't connect to it like we used to. And what I want to think about this morning is, what is Mary singing about? Because if she's just singing about, I'm going to give birth to the Messiah, then it's going to be hard to relate to it because that is just such an incredibly unique thing. She, that was just, she was one of a kind, Right? But Mary doesn't sing a song about Mary. She sings a song about God. Now, her experience is incredibly unique in the Bible, one of a kind. But the, the big themes, the big realities that she is saying, that she is experiencing, are things that really anybody who has been touched 
by God's mercy, by the grace of God, anyone who's been saved by God, as the Bible would say, can, can resonate with this song. And so maybe God, I don't know, maybe He will renew us where this song becomes our song too. But for that to happen, we need to understand it. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. Mary has just received the announcement that she'll give birth to the Messiah from the archangel Gabriel. And then Luke writes this. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come in here and we assemble and we come for worship, we want what we're doing now to be part of our worship. Please, would you help us, would you enable us not to be on autopilot, uh, not to just sit and hear a sermon out, not to endure a sermon, but to hear you from your word. This is your word, and we need to hear it. So please speak through your word into our very hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, a friend of mine living in, uh, not in the city of Chicago, but in the Chicago suburbs, in a fairly affluent area. In fact, I think he said that around his neighborhood was where they filmed Home Alone, you know, just kind of very tasteful, two-story brick home kind of area. Um, this, this, there was a neighborhood association, and it was affluent enough where they could do things that most neighborhood associations uh, normally wouldn't find this. They'd bring in speakers. They would have these very high-powered activities. Several years ago, uh, uh, around the same time, several books came out about the pressure that students are under in affluent families uh, to get into top-ranking schools and just what that does to them, what that does to their family life, um, the pressure they're under, just several very similar books. Well, the author of one of those books was invited to come speak at this, at this neighborhood meeting. 
So uh, she's a sociologist, PhD. She'd done all this research, so she comes and kind of distills down the, the substance of her book. But she's speaking to not just a random group of people. She's speaking to the exact sort of demographic that she wrote about. I mean, these are the parents trying to get their children into high-ranking schools. So I can't quote her exact language that he told me, but there, there was a point where she really started to square off with the audience. And she said, look, it doesn't expletive-deleted matter what rank your kid's school is. And then she said, you know what, for some of you sitting here right now, these rankings that come out by the U.S. You know, uh, US News and World Report is your pornography. And I think that was pretty much her last time at the, at the Neighborhood Association. But <laughs> the, the question, though, is if... If she had bumped into that in enough areas, if that was enough of a national phenomenon that it generated all that research in, in writing this, why do we fantasize, let's say parents, why do we fantasize about our child being in a, in a, a school that's ranked in the top 20? Uh, why do I fantasize about not just having a job, but like being known as one of the best in my vocation. And that's very intentionally phrased, by the way. Not just being one of the best in my vocation, but known for being one of the best in my vocation. Uh, why do I want to be known as a good person? Why do I want to be known as a good parent? Whatever. There is this thing in our hearts, the Bible is very explicit about it, that really wants to be important. And that thing in our hearts is really going to struggle with this, song, with this song. Because Mary sings this song as a nobody. And she identifies herself as a nobody. Now, she doesn't use the word nobody. She speaks about being of humble estate. But that means I'm a nobody. And she's saying that God is so great that He does great things for nobodies. I mean, it's not like Israel is a superpower in her day. Rome is unquestionably the power of the day, and Israel is under Rome, Rome's thumb. But again, here, here's the wonderful thing. This is not a song about being the mother of the Messiah. It's not Mary singing about being Mary. Mary sings a song about God. I mean, what's the first thing she says? My, my soul magnifies what? Whom? The Lord. My spirit rejoices in whom? God, my Savior. It's a song about God. So let's, let's unpack what are some big themes that she's singing about God. I want to look at three things. First off, he blesses with mercy. Second thing, he exalts the humble. Third, he puts me in his plan. He blesses with mercy. He exalts the humble. He puts me in his plan. Look at verse 48. He blesses with mercy. It says here in the second part of verse 48, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now she's just acknowledging something that her relative Elizabeth said to her. Look back in verse 42. When Elizabeth sees Mary, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Then look at verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, let me just go ahead and acknowledge this. You don't have to be nervous about 
acknowledging that Mary is blessed, that she is the most blessed of women. That doesn't mean we worship her, but to say that she is highly blessed is just to be biblical. Uh, If the mother of John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, says you're blessed, you're blessed. If an archangel says that you're favored, you're favored, you're special. Here's the question, though. Why is Mary blessed? Is Mary blessed because she was so faithful? Is Mary blessed this way, so uniquely, because she's so obedient? Look, look back in her song at how she sings about mercy. Look in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, if, if you're not a sinner and you don't fail all the time, mercy's not a big deal. If you're a sinner and you know what it is to fail, you love mercy. Sinners love mercy. Look down in verse 54. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Now, for Mary, what mercy might mean as she's singing this is, you know what? Rome is a bully. And we need rescuing. God, we need Your mercy. She may mean that, but... In the scriptures, mercy is so much tied into what? The forgiveness of sins. And listen to this. Right before this, when the archangel Gabriel comes and announces to Mary that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, two different times he says, you're favored. You have favor from the Lord, Mary. The word that we translate favor there is the Greek word that we normally translate grace. Mary you're not going to be the one who bestows grace. You're receiving grace. You're the recipient of grace. Some of you may know the name uh, Steve Brown. He's a preacher, uh, been on the radio, uh, writer, all that. Steve Brown came up with an expression. I don't know if he coined it, but he's the first one I ever heard say it. He said, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you have to figure it didn't get up there by itself. And he says, a turtle on a fence post is a picture of a Christian. Right? Look around the room right now. Just look around the room. The Bible says that we are born into sin. The Bible says not that we show up and we're a blank slate and it's kind of, you know, the scales could tip either way, but then when we sin, we become a sinner. We are born as sinners. We sin because we're sinners. It'll even use language like we are born, we show up, children of wrath. Now look around this morning and there are people who've come on a cold morning when they could have slept in, when they could have stayed at home, and we are singing about, not ourselves, about God. And we're listening to this ancient book. And we're confessing our sins and saying, boy, I break God's law. I need help. I need... We're saying that together and we're saying, isn't Jesus fantastic? None of this is natural. How did it happen? Is it because we have amazing, clever instincts? No. It's because God has been incredibly merciful to us. He has blessed us. Whatever your financial condition, whatever your health is, whatever your relationships are like right now, if you know that things are right between you and God, He has blessed you with His mercy. Now think about this, when, when just as, as downtown Prez, as a local church, whenever we admit new members, usually I'll stand about right here and folks will line up front and I'll ask them five membership questions. And the first question is, 
Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure? You know, would it be fair for God to judge you? And then, but the question ends this way, that we are without hope save in His sovereign what? Mercy. God, we are a community that, even though we don't have Mary's calling, we are a community that can say, God is the God who blesses with mercy. Listen to this. This is just a sentence or two from the Apostle Paul. But listen to how this sounds like him using Magnificat language about just normal Christian life. He's writing to just Gentile Christians. And he writes this, Titus 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... And Mary said, He's God my Savior. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. There it is. Uh, There's one way to make sure that you're not allowed to join this church. You may be here and you're visiting, you don't have any interest in joining this church. But I'll tell you on the front end, there is a way not to be allowed to join this church, and that is to believe that you're good. But man, when God shows you that what you need for me to do is not bless you with payback for being so good, but to bless you with mercy, then you can sing, you can worship, you can connect with people, you can love the Lord's Supper, you can hear the Word. He blesses with mercy. Second thing, He exalts the humble. He exalts the humble. Go back to verse 48. She says, He, God, has looked on the humble estate of His servant. He's looked on the humble estate of His servant. Now that that phrase comes back up. Look down in verse 52. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now, what, what is this an image of? This is Mary talking about, I'm not a have. I'm not important. But this God, God of Israel, He, he lifts up the unimportant. He makes the unimportant important. He makes the insignificant significant, and He exalts them. Now, now here's the question. Does God exalt all people? Does God exalt people because they're just people? No, Mary sings, no. He doesn't do that. Look in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. And boy, does she sound like she grew up with the Old Testament when she says that. That is all through the Bible, God's arm. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We don't use the language of exaltation or exalt very often. That just kind of sounds more like bible words. We don't speak that way usually. We do, though, want to be prominent. So let me ask you this. For us, what is the pathway to prominence? And I would say go back to that neighborhood meeting with the author. You know, I want to be known. I don't want to be a have-not. I want to be a have. I don't want to be unimportant. I want to be important. 
So what will that look like? I will be educated enough. I will be pretty enough. I will be included enough. I'll be smart enough. I'll be quick enough. I'll be fit enough. I'll accomplish enough. And that's how I'll do it. And, you know, almost all those things, the more you actually have that or experience that, it really moves you into the circle of what we call the haves. And that's ironic because Mary perceives that not only her people, but she, as an individual, is exalted. She's a have-not. Do we know that or is that just tradition? Actually, biblically, we know that. How do we know that Mary was poor? In the next chapter of Luke, Joseph and Mary, they obey the law of God when Jesus is born. When he's eight days old, they present him at the temple. And in the law of God, in Leviticus chapter 12, there's a law that you're supposed to keep for your firstborn. You're supposed to bring an offering for sacrifice. And normally what you would bring is a lamb. So when your first child shows up, bring a lamb. But there's this little provision in Leviticus 12. It says, but... It doesn't doesn't refer to the dad. It refers to the mom. It says, but if she cannot afford a lamb, she can bring two turtle doves. And Luke quotes that that's what they did. Now, who, who could have known when they read the law of God in the synagogue, in the temple, all those years, that that would describe the Messiah's mother? Because she's poor. Pretty much everyone in this room is doing everything possible not to be in Mary's socioeconomic position. Uh, Parents fantasize about most of what we fantasize with in regard to our children so that they will not be in Mary's socioeconomic position. And yet, as she's in it, she perceives that she's exalted. Now, question, how does that become real? Because for her... It's real. But we don't ever want the takeaway to be like, okay, so be like Mary. I I can't stand sermons like that. If Mary was here, that would be weird. But if, if, if Mary was here, well, first off, you'd see this Middle Eastern teenager, which would freak you out. She would plead with you, do not be like Mary. I want you to know Mary's God. I want you to know the God of Israel. Um, what happened where she perceived that God does something that's so real that He exalts you even if you don't have enough money? Even if you're not with the haves? Can I just mention something in passing? I, I I wouldn't drive any huge conclusion out of this. It is worth observing that when I'm downtown that when I just overhear people talking about Jesus, talking loudly about Jesus, it is almost exclusively people people in a lower socioeconomic group. It's not haves. That's worth mentioning. How does it become so real that I'm exalted that I actually know I'm exalted? And it's not just talk. The third thing, because Mary got this, is that God, He includes me in His plan. He includes me in His plan. Before we moved to Greenville, my family lived in Nashville. And 
on Broadway, heading into downtown, there's a museum in Nashville called the Frist Center for the Visual Arts. And this would have been about 10 years ago. I went to an exhibit at the Frist, and it was a, an exhibit of ancient manuscripts. And I think, I think calligraphy is amazing. I think in the New Earth, I'll be a calligrapher. Well, I can't preach anymore, so I better find something to do. And they're just amazing illuminated manuscripts and, and handwritten, hand calligraphy Bibles. But the item that I remember the most, uh, most vividly, it was exhibited at about waist high, and it was under a glass case, and it was narrow, and it was an unrolled manuscript, very long. And it was a list of the British monarchs. I can't remember where it left off, but I want to say it was around the late 1500s or early 1600s. So some of those names were familiar. I remember taking History of England when I was in college, so I knew some of these names. So, and, you know, it was under glass, so you could get close to it. So I started reading these names and just working back, and then it gets into medieval names, and those are not familiar. And then I went further and further back, and then all of a sudden, you know what name I came to? Arthur. And now I struggled with this at the early service, too. I don't, I don't know how to verbalize the feeling. How do you describe a feeling? But when, okay, these are known, historic, like we know the day that this person was born, the day this person died. But I went back, back, back. Arthur, to just this gigantic legend of British identity. Now, hear me out, because I don't want you to, get the wrong conclusion from this. Arthur is so important to the Brits. You know, the Brits, the legend is he'll come back. I mean, just, he was the king. Abraham is Arthur. And I'm not saying he's legendary. Abraham is historic. But what I mean is, for just the Jewish identity, how massive he is, that you read in Genesis, you start at the beginning, and you're reading through, and just people begin to just go into different clans and tribes and and they start to cover the earth and they're all spread out. Everything's just moving. It's more fragmented. And God comes to this one man. Why? Because he deserved it. No, because he's faithful. No, God just in his mercy comes to this one guy, Abram. And he singles him out and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And that begins the Jewish identity. That begins the people of Israel with this man. And by the way, the reason I don't think that comparison is a stretch is the fir- I, I, I remember the first time I ever saw Henry V, Shakespeare's Henry V, there's a, there's a scene where a character dies and a woman describes him as going to the bosom of Arthur, which means heaven. Now that's Shakespeare's imagination. But later on in Luke... Jesus records a man dying, and the way he describes heaven is that the man went to Abraham's bosom. Just he, he, He's a gigantic figure. Now, look at what Mary says in her song in verse 54. He, God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying that thing that's so ancient, it's older than David, it's older than Moses, that 
what God did toward Abraham, what He's doing, not just for us in our day, but what He's doing in my life, in my body, in a sense is made of the same DNA as that thing that started back with Abraham. And Mary could, and this is like the Psalms, Mary could use the plural and the singular. Plural. God is merciful to us. God is fulfilling His plans for us. But she's also able to say, God is merciful to me. God is fulfilling His plans for me. Like, as she looked down at her growing midsection, she could say, this goes back to Abraham. And God has included me in this gigantic plan. Get this. You know, after Mary's song, there's another song. And it's sung by Elizabeth's husband, John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah. He wasn't able to talk during his wife's pregnancy. When John is born and he's named John, his, his language is restored and he sings a song. Here's part of it. He sings about John to John, to the baby John. He says, you're going to prepare the way for the Lord. And what is the Lord going to do? What does He come to do? To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. There's this ancient, ancient, ancient plan. And it's not just that the people of God together are in it. Individuals are in it. Individual Christians are in it. Did you hear uh, a few weeks ago about the oldest American book was sold at auction for a little bit over $14 million? Did you hear this in the news? It was a Puritan book of Psalms, the Bay Psalm book. It's believed to be the the first book printed in the the colonies. 1640s, it sold for $14.2 million at auction. I can't believe I sunk that kind of money into a book, but... Question, what is the most valuable book in existence? And of course, what's the Sunday school answer? The Bible. I may surprise you. No. What is the most valuable book in existence? The reason I say no, I mean, my life is wrapped up in that book, but the reason I say no is that at the end, the Bible's not necessary. The people in hell do not want the Bible. The people in heaven don't need it. They, they see the Word. They live with the Word. But there is a book that continues to exist. What is it? The Lamb's Book of Life. There is a book that has the names of all these people through the centuries, through the millennia, that God unnaturally wrote into His plan. And here's how important it is. Uh, Later in Luke, there's an episode where Jesus, when he's grown, he sends out 72 people to do miracles in his name, cast out demons and heal. And so the 72 go out and they do what he said to do. I mean, it was his idea. He sends them out and they do it and they come back and they're just pumped. I I mean, you would be pumped if you could do that. So they come back and they're excited and Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, he says... It was great. I saw Satan take a hit. Yet, do not rejoice that the demons submit to you. But rather, rejoice 
but your names are written in heaven. Do not derive your joy even from good Christian activity. Derive your joy from the fact that your name unnaturally is included in the plan of salvation. Man, what if that got really into our hearts? What if that really got into our hearts? I mean, what, could it be that that would start to extinguish or liberate us from this just unending PR campaign that we're on about ourselves? And we are doing it through appearance, home, humor, social media. Just like as a friend of mine said, every human in the world is walking around looking at every other human. We're all asking the same question Do you like me? And so we're doing everything we can to get the answer to be yes. Man, what if it got into our bones? that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I don't have to just kill myself and kill everybody around me to be important. You know why? I am important. I am already important. But go back to the beginning of the sermon. It's not that I'm important because I believe my Bible. No. It's not I'm important because I am faithful to God. I hope we know ourselves better than that. I am important because God in His mercy blessed me, exalted me to put my name in that book when I have given Him every reason in the world not to. That's why I'm important. That's why I'm exalted. I mean, that's why we need to do this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. No, that is not me saying that for job justification. The reason we need to do this Sunday after Sunday is to come back together and say... It's not your grades. It's not hitting your sales numbers. It's not your marathon time. By the way, have you seen the sticker on the back of cars that says 0.0? I love that sticker so much. It's not your times. It's not how smart you are. It's not you being the smartest person in the room. The Lamb's Book of Life. Because... Here's what we know that Mary could not yet know. She came to know it. But the reason somebody like me could have their name unnaturally in that book is because the reason I could be blessed that way is because her son grew up and was cursed when he should have been blessed. The city that should have blessed him cursed him. The people that should have blessed him cursed him. Why is he up there? Is he he up there because of what he's like? He's up there because of what I'm like. And that's what gets me in the Lamb's Book of Life. What if that was my identity? Let me end with this. Because I do think this, this, what I'm about to say, was a snapshot of when this does start to get into your heart. Um, I don't use this word very often because it just can sound so preachery. But I will use this word. Last week in our worship service, there was a tremendous blessing. And I don't mean my sermon. The blessing was an account by one of our um, newer church members, Giselle Weeks, about what God had done in her life this year. And what, what was so wonderful was she, she started out and said, I, my, this account is not dramatic. 
grew up with a nominal church background, and I was not going to join Atheist Society of America, but I was increasingly skeptical, and I increasingly distrusted organized religion, and there was a hole in my life, and then this was my favorite part. She said, and then, but, here's what he did. See, good testimonies, biblical or contemporary, the dominant pronoun is not I. It's he. And when it grabs your heart what he has done and what he still does, then you can sing Mary's song because she's singing he. She feels it. She sings about him. And listen, last thing. You may be here this morning and you've never been able to sing about God's mercy, but it could be... I mean, you, it's not a coincidence that you're here. And it may be that this is the morning, and this is not me being manipulative, this is an offer and an appeal, that this is the day where you finally say, God, I've never humbled myself in front of you. I'm doing everything I can to exalt myself. I don't even know what it means to humble myself, but I'm humbling myself before you and you handle the exaltation. Because there's a lot about you I don't understand, but I know I need mercy. And I need blessing. I want to be in this plan that you, that you wrote. And really place yourself at His mercy. And you know what? Watch and see what the Lord does. And maybe what's going to happen is you're going to be able to come back in here, or wherever, you don't have to be here, but you're going to go somewhere where they do this. And you're going to join your voice with the people saying, He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do want glory. We do want significance. We do want to matter. But Father, our hearts take that, not bad desires, but we twist it into things that aren't good. We go about it in dark ways and we place ourselves before you and say, Oh Lord, we need your mercy. Your mercy would be our significance. Your mercy would be our exaltation. Would you be the lifter of our head instead of us lifting it up for ourselves? Would you be the one who straightens our back rather than us standing up with stiff necks doing it ourselves? We praise you, Lord. We don't praise Mary. We praise you as Mary's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.